You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I've got Greg McKenna with me. Welcome to the island, Greg. G'day. Nice to be here, Tony. Greg, all our guests on the island have the opportunity to tell that story of that time in their life when they did something for themselves, perhaps followed a dream, pursued a passion, or life threw them a bit of a curveball. Do you have a time in your life where that might have happened to you? Yeah, so it was uh, it was around 2003, 2004, bit of a sliding door moment, like that movie of all those years ago. My son was born on January 26, 2003, and in his first 12 weeks of life, I was offshore for about six of those. And in his first 12 months of life, I was offshore for almost four months, you know, traveling around, doing the banking thing and flying into business class or sometimes first class, getting upgraded and staying in five-star hotels and all that kind of stuff. And then having to come home to a, you know, a baby and my wife who, you know, this was our first kid. So it was one of those things where I really had to think about what I wanted from life. And um, I was getting job offers offshore in London and New York, and we were living in Sydney. And it was something that I'd always wanted to do to, to go offshore and, um, you know, currency markets are kind of fun, a lot of fun, actually. And it's all I ever wanted to do. Um, you know, 1983, when they floated the Australian dollar, I decided I wanted to go into currencies. And that's all I ever wanted to do was be in banking and um, be in markets. And we had to really make a decision. Did I, Lisa, as a young mum, didn't want to go overseas with a, a one-year-old. And it, the question was, did I want to be a dad? Did I want to be a family guy? And um, did I want to stay connected to my wife and child? And so the trajectory of my career, which I'd always assumed and was a large part of who I saw myself as, um, I'd always assumed would take me offshore and spend five or 10 years or however long, you know, working in London or New York or somewhere else. It just went away because I stepped away. I resigned in March 2004 from, uh, from the NAB and, um, yeah, had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and tried a few different things, but it, it you know, definitely changed the the art of uh, of my life. It made me a much better human. Um, I can say that now with the benefit of 18 years 
having passed and, and, and what I'm doing now, but um, it was the most fundamentally important thing that I've ever done. I've now got two kids. Lisa and I have been married for 26 years. Uh, I'm a much better human. I'm the CEO of a small mutual bank. And there's been a lot um, has happened in the intervening period. Tried a few different things. But yeah, it was, uh, it, it, it was definitely a sliding door moment. On the Monday morning after you resigned, how did you feel? Yeah, a little bit lost. It's one of those things. When you work, uh, a mate of mine who's always worked for himself says that entrepreneurs and people who run their own business, uh, basically each day they, they jump out of the plane without a parachute and they just get it done. And as someone who'd been in banking, I, I finished school, had 10 days off and went straight to Westpac. So I'd been in banking. Someone had put money into my uh, banking markets and finance, I should say. Someone had put money into my bank account either every two weeks or every month, depending on where I worked. And so here I was this Monday going, okay, you've got to do it now. And um, honestly, I wasn't ready. And the, the, the first couple of years after uh, I left the NAB, which is when I, I met that good mate of mine, he was fundamental to me becoming a, a much better human and, and you know, the, the, the next 18 years uh, of my evolution. It, it was just one of those things where I thought I was prepared but I was not prepared because I'd been really good at this really finite thing in financial markets and banking. And I hadn't prepared myself personally as a human or cognitively for, you know, what it means to actually get off your backside and go and do something yourself. So it, uh, it was a struggle for the next couple of years. And in the end, I, I went back to banking, which was a good thing for me to do. So, yeah, it, was, it wasn't fun, Tony. Put it that way. So what were some of the things that you did to, to, I try, tried to, find, to, to try to find what was right for you? <laughs> yeah, right. It's very embarrassing, actually. So I tried to be a mortgage broker. And my accountant said to me, what? You're hopeless with people. And I did used to be hopeless with people. And so, so you can imagine that didn't go very well. I did some consulting. I uh, did a lot of that. That was, that was a lot of fun. So... I was I was good at good at analytics, good at um, uh, forecasting, good at spreadsheeting, good at modelling, all that kind of stuff. So um, this mate of mine that that um, I mentioned, I met. He was a, a small business consultant and worked for a bunch of different companies. So I did so I did some of that uh, with him and um, and was good at it. But uh, they were the they were the, probably the, the, the two main things. The mortgage broking thing I was just terrible at. I was I was actually all right at it. You know the the income wasn't terrible, but I was terrible at it because I hadn't, I hadn't made that um, AI turned up to people's houses in the wrong car. You would have thought I was a real estate agent rather than a mortgage broker. And I just didn't really feel like I connected with the people as humans, the way that, you know, as the you know, CEO of Police Bank now, I genuinely care about and connect with our members and, and people more broadly. That's been the fundamental, you know, sometimes... It, there's a little bit of personal adversity you've got to go through to, to figure out who you want to be and what you want to be. And um, from my point of view, that was a, that was a bit of a, a mirror. Um, you know, what, what, why wasn't I good at it? And um, my dad, who had been in good at sales uh, all his life, basically sat me down and, you know, gave me a bit of a lesson on, you know, um, people have got to like you, you've got to care about them, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so what did you do 
to get people to listen to you, to like you, for you to care about them? Well, I wasn't ready in that first iteration of working for myself. And I ended up at Newcastle Permanent, uh, which is a um, building society over here on the East Coast. And um, uh, at the time, I think it was the second biggest mutual. And I, was, uh, I went there um, in the Treasury Department and ended up as treasurer uh, during the GFC. And that was, that was a good place to be during the GFC, both for me and for them, because all those skills that I'd built up in financial markets in the, you know, the previous 20 years before I got there and in life set me up to be able to help the organisation manage what was a, a really uncomfortable environment for banks of all sizes and building societies is essentially a bank, uh, banks of all sizes uh, across the world and, and here in Australia. And it was, it was connecting with the people of Newcastle, I think, that really started. It's such genuinely nice people. And I'll you know, uh, declare an interest. I live in Newcastle now. Uh, genuinely nice people, uh, genuinely decent people. And I had to talk to people who were absolutely frightened about what was going to happen to the organisation where they had their life savings in, to the organisation that we knew was going to survive because we knew of the strength of the membership. And you know, when money was flowing out of a lot of organisations across the country and the world, and going to the big banks, uh, money was actually coming into the perm. Such was the, the strength of its bond with the people of Newcastle. But there were people who you know, wanted to take out $400,000 in cash and wanted to put it under their bed. And I had to talk to them about why that wasn't a good idea and all this kind of stuff. And I had a, I had a team. I'd always been a kind of a lone wolf in financial markets, you know, just a really small team. So me and a few others, or just me often, um, or I was part of a team, but I was basically, because I was really good at what I did, I was you know, accommodated in a way that I wouldn't accommodate someone like me now, if that makes any sense. But connecting with the people of, of Newcastle, connecting with the members uh, of the perm was the, the fundamental shift. And then I was there for five years during the GFC. And a lot of what I used to do was, you know, talks around Newcastle about what was happening in the, in the economy, what was happening in the local economy, where things were going to end up, that kind of stuff. And, after one of those talks, a lady who was running a small business came up to me and said, thank you for your advice. And I suddenly thought to myself, oh, hang on. I don't think I was giving advice. I was just talking about what I think will happen. And that, that took that connection to the next level, if that made any sense. So it wasn't so much that I was trying to give advice, but I felt a responsibility not to get it wrong and to really be someone that, the people who were listening to me could trust. And so, you know, those new, Newcastle um, changed things. Uh, my wife changed me fundamentally. My son, as he, as he grew up, changed me. The daughter came along. She did. So it's been a, a family slash Newcastle thing. And then, and I work at it. I really, really work at it. Even as CEO now, every single day I sit down and I've got a, a practice to, to make myself a, the best human I can be, and also now that I'm a CEO, um, the best leader I can be. When you got that feedback from that lady, was that really surprising for you? You know, it sounds yeah. like you hadn't been in environments where people would give you positive feedback, would acknowledge what you've said has really helped them and 
perhaps that you've actually listened or understood their predicament or their potential um, vulnerabilities? The, the distinction was I was used to talking to professionals. So, you know, I'd go and see uh, the state authority for foreign exchange in Beijing, you know, one of the world's biggest, you know, currency investors, or I'd, you know, go and see um, Massachusetts Financial over in Boston or any of the big um, institutions in Australia or, um, you know, um, you know uh, I think it's widows and orphans, you know, over in the UK and all those kind of places. And, but they were professionals. So I would give my view. And sometimes we had some robust discussions, like one I had with a New York fund manager in her office overlooking um, Central Park. But they were robust discussions of professionals who knew the stakes and knew what they were talking about. The difference here was that a woman and her business had relied on me as the professional about what I was talking about in terms of the economy and things like that. And one of the things I'd, I'd always tried to be right. I saw my, my fundamental value um, as a trader when I used to be a trader was to be right, to make money. I'd seen my fundamental value as a fund manager when I was a fund manager to be right because I made money. And then when I moved into currency strategy, I saw my fundamental value as being right because I helped other people make money. But when I was doing these economic talks, I, I kind of felt like they were a best endeavours kind of idea because, you know, um, what do they say? You know, get three economists in a room and you'll get five or six views. But I didn't have that option because people were actually acting on what I was, even though there was no fiduciary relationship between us, even though I was not an advisor in the sense of your financial advisor is your advisor or your accountant can be your advisor or your lawyer, you know, is your advisor when it comes to, to law or your doctor is your doctor, you know, same sort of thing. Um, even though there wasn't that kind of relationship, uh, that changed everything. And it was the most fundamentally positive conversation once I figured out how I was going to handle it. Because what it did was it, it, it really reinforced the fact that people were listening. They always had, but that, and these people mattered to me. The outcomes, the outcomes for their business mattered to me. So it was part of that evolution of becoming a decent human. And because they mattered to me, I put in a lot more work. I'd always put in a lot of work, but I put in a lot more work. And I changed the language that I used so it was much easier to understand. And I always held myself accountable. I used to do these talks every sort of four to six months. First thing I'd, I'd do was stand up and say, here's what I said last time. And then we'd go on to, to where we were uh, from there. So once I'd assimilated that conversation and embraced it, I got much better, uh, actually, both at communicating and also at economic and market forecasting. It was really weird when you think about it. But yeah, it was, it was really a really, really important conversation for me in my evolution. Being in Newcastle and for listeners on Max's Island, Newcastle's not a small place. It's a, it's a sizable city. But being in that community... Do you think also, and you've said that you've you connected with that community and you're still there, do you think there was something in the fact that for you to be part of that community, you did need to be trusted? And in particular, you may have seen those people you were talking to walking down the main street of Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, that, that, was, that was definitely something that happened. Um, you know, people come up, even three months ago, I was walking down the street where we live in, in New Lambton in Newcastle with my wife and some fellow walks out of his 
garden and said, ah, you're that bloke that used to talk at, you know, Maxim Accounting, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, whoa, hang on. And, um, and I haven't done that for quite some time since I became CEO of Bank. And yeah, so it is, it is that. But it was more that people were actually, people who were non-professional, market people, non-professional economists, non-professional investors, but were very professional at running their own business making decisions based on what I was saying and whether I, I had it been in you know Bunbury, Burke or, or Newcastle to know that people were actually acting on what I was saying to me was the fundamental point of differentiation. I, they weren't just taking what I said as a view, they were making decisions on it and that, that and I didn't feel a weight of responsibility uh, in the sense that it, it, it weighed on me. I felt a responsibility to help them do better. And that's kind of, you know, what I do at the bank now. Uh, it's, it's, for me, that's my fundamental calling now is to help people be their best selves, help my bank be its best self, you know, build a better bank and help my team be their best selves. So it's all part of that, uh, that journey. I've got a couple of questions. The first one is you referenced somebody who came into your life at the start of this transition. What influence did they have? Fundamental. Mike Millard's his name and he's a great bloke. He's in the UK now. He runs a, a, a company of 17,000 people. He's a great human. He's a great salesperson. His backstory uh, and his life is really interesting. And we just became really good mates. And I was really able to learn lots from him. Lots about you know, sales and about being a decent human. I know that I've said that a few times, which kind of implies that I think I wasn't a very nice person a long time ago. And I was a very, very self-centered. So Mike helped me and my wife did too. I can't under, 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 um, undersell the importance of, of what Lisa has helped me achieve in terms of my journey. So, you know, but Mike, because in a, in a work sense, he showed me the way if I could put it that way. He showed me the way to connect. And of course, the, the process of selling is action process. And even though he was doing, when we were consulting, he was doing a lot of the, 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 the salesy bit, if I could put it that way, in terms of communicating with the, the business owners and, and getting them over the line. I got to see that close, um, at, at, at close range. And we just spent a lot of time together. And um, you know the people he introduced me to some of the some of the lawyers and the accountants and business people and you know clients uh, yeah, they it, it was just part of the progression to you know there's a world outside of financial markets that you need to know about and these people are actually doing really well and um, you can learn a lot from them so I think that was you know I could go on for hours about the impact that uh, Lisa and Mike have had but yeah that was probably the key thing it opened my eyes to the reality that uh, you know, there is life beyond, um, you know, whether the Aussie dollar is going to go up or go down. When you had this, I, would, I won't say revelation, because it probably took some years for it to evolve. Was there any point in time where you felt that actually I'm different? I think differently? Or do you think it was um, a, a time where you, you just became comfortable in the way you were acting? I'm definitely built different. You know, we've all got our peccadillos. Yeah, I definitely think sometimes in a unique manner, 
Although I see my son does exactly the same, massive working memory and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of the, the transition, it was a bit of, you know, and I talk to my kids about this all the time. Sometimes when you're not sure what to do, you've just got to take the first step. Then the first step becomes the second step. So for me, I knew that I had a decision to make about whether or not I wanted to be with my family or go and work in London or New York. And that was an easy decision to make and the correct decision. I made the correct decision. And the interesting thing is, you know, I think about the kind of person that I thought I was and there would have been at least, you know, somebody who knew me when I was in my, in my early 20s probably would have said, well, that's a 50-50 chance. But of course it wasn't um, once you have a, you know, you marry the right person and, um, and, you, and you got a kid. So it was just for me, it was just I had to do the right thing. And the right thing was to choose my family over what I thought was going to be uh, the trajectory and then to figure out what I was going to do after that. So it, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm comfortable in being uncomfortable if I could put it that way too. And so I just, I just had to put one foot in front of the other and, and, and crack on, as Mike says, crack on. At, at any point, did you have regrets? Oh, God, yes. yes. Absolutely. You know, like I left a pile of cash on the table. And that as someone who, we weren't exactly poor when I was a kid, but I grew up in the Western suburbs of Sydney and mum and dad worked really, really hard. And um, I got sent to a half-decent school in Strathfield. But uh, apart from that, um, it was a pretty working-class existence. And I never, I never wanted to not have any money, if that makes any sense. The idea of not having money scared the, scared the heck out of me because I, I saw how hard mum had to work and sometimes scrape and all, 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 that sort of, all that sort of stuff. And my dad was always asleep when he got home because he just worked so hard. So the money thing was almost godlike for me. So for a long time, that was kind of like this, this little devil that used to sit on my shoulder and say, you've made the wrong decision, you've made the wrong decision. I haven't made the wrong decision. But for a while, yeah, I did regret it because I was really, really good at markets and really, really good at currencies. And it was a lot of fun. It was, it was almost like sport for me. So, and I got paid well for a young bloke. So I was only 30, 34, 35 um, when I left the NAB in 2004. Greg, as we wind up our time together on, on Max's Island, it's such a, an amazing about face from, a, as, as you say, a perceived career trajectory and that point in time when you had to really change and, and, and make some decisions that weren't only around your career, but around your life and the way you, you acted in your life. You mentioned your, your two kids and you've mentioned that you've, you have conversations with them and, and about this. What advice would you give others who are perhaps faced with a similar position? Now, not everybody has the support of, of a loved one. So do you, what, what advice do you have to you know, young people in their teens who are planning a career who are going to uni who have had this perceived trajectory what do you say to them in preparation for an understanding of what a full life is it's not about work it's about people and relationships get ready for things to go awry because often things go awry with that with alacrity cheerful readiness because life hits you in the face. Now, there are some people who do have charmed life. Look at those Winklevoss twins, you know, the Bitcoin dudes. You know, they, you know, they went to Harvard, they rode for America, and now they're gazillionaires from Bitcoin. That's a charmed life, right? But we don't actually know what, what, what goes on in their head. So I think the thing for me is be comfortable with where you are, embrace those who destiny has surrounded you with, but 
always be prepared to challenge yourself to be the best version of yourself. Now, whether that means education, whether that means fitness and nutrition and health, whether that means taking a risk on a partner who, you know, not be ready to take a risk on. I just think that the, the overriding life goal for all of us should be to be the best versions of ourselves. Um, but each person's view on what that means is going to be different. And um, just, just try to try to be a good human. Nobody dies. You know, we all know the story, right? No one, no one on their deathbed says, Oh, wish I could have bought more stuff. It's always, I wish I could have spent more time with my parents, my children, my partner, my friends, that kind of thing. And I think that's the, that's the key, the key thing. And when it comes to career, find something that you enjoy, find something that people will pay you for and find something that you're good at and find that intersection and you'll be able to have a, a balanced work and outside of work life if you can, if you can do that. Greg, thanks for being on the island. A lot of the stories that we, we have from our guests and we find that the key moments in their life, they actually made the decision based on how they felt at the time, the emotions. Some of that was more obvious for others. Some of it was a real shock and a real change. Your story about being in the analytical world of numbers and currency and finance to be turned on its head by you feeling that actually you needed to make a different decision says to me that that was always there for you. You, 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 that part of you was there and was perhaps just not visible, but that was the, the real you. So thanks for being the real you on Max's Island. Loved the story. I love where you've got to. And, and in particular, that it appears that Newcastle is your tribe, is your, is your place. It's where you're, you're part of, of something, part of a group of people, a big group of people, but really um, it's interesting that that's consistent with perhaps the way your, your thought process changed. You, you gravitated to a place where you could be really part of a, of a community. So thanks for being on the island and good luck for the future. Thanks very much. It's been great. Really lovely to chat. Thank you. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur. Oh, work and no play And how, how had it turned out this way? He told me his plan A short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmint track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way
Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing.